You're about to hear a message that was preached at Calvary Fellowship in Miramar, Florida. At Calvary, we exist to help people take their next step with God. And we pray that this message helps you do just that. How's everybody doing? Yes, 12.15, the service I love the most. And I know this is our first time meeting at 12.15, but I feel like this is the beginning of a beautiful relationship. I really do. So uh, some of you know this, some of you don't, but I grew up in Boston, at least till I was about 14 or so, and then we spent some of our time in a suburb of Boston that was called Brockton. That was kind of a rougher area in uh, the greater Boston scene. Uh, It was the home, if you're not aware, Brockton is the home of two very famous boxers, uh, Rocky Marciano and Marvelous Marvin Hagler, if you remember uh, them. I think that's probably the reason why there's so many fights in my neighborhood. And um, now, so you can imagine all these things happening in Brockton, and then there was one Cuban family, and that was us. And now, here's the thing you have to understand, is that, especially if you're Latin, is that if you've lived in South Florida for a long time, it's hard to appreciate the fact that Cubans do weird things. You don't think they're weird because everyone around you is doing them, so it just seems normal. But I'm telling you that I remember my friends calling me and being like, hey, um, what are you guys doing? Like, oh, we're celebrating Christmas. Really? So you, you dig a hole in your backyard and cook an entire pig? That's, that's what you do. <laughs> yeah, and oh, yeah, we don't, we don't do that because, you know, we have like electricity and stuff, and, and this isn't... This isn't like 1000 AD. That's why we're not doing that. And so anyway, and so, but the other thing is, is that especially once again, if, if you grew up in a Cuban family, you know this, but um, you know, your parents were, my parents were always telling me that everything, no matter what topic it was, everything in Cuba was better. Everything in Cuba was, this was, you know, it was better. I remember my family telling me, my, my parents telling me that pizza was better in Cuba than in Italy, the people who invented it. And I'm like, for real? And so, and I remember telling my parents, like, hey, if Cuba was so great, why'd you guys leave? And, um, and when I regained consciousness, <laughs> I knew never to ask that question. And so, <laughs> but now, because we were very traditional, one of the things that we, that we had was that all of our furniture was covered in plastic. And because, um, uh, and, you know, we wanted to make sure if the 1960s ever came back, we wanted that red velvet uh, living room set to be in pristine condition. So, and even, I'll tell you this too, is that, and this was kind of, I think like, just like extra Cuban, is that even our lampshade had plastic, had a plastic cover. I remember taking off the plastic cover. I mean, it looked like, that lampshade looked like it had a farmer tan uh, from the thing had been on there so long. Anyway, so, but my, my mom and my stepdad, they were very particular about the furniture. We were allowed to sit on the furniture, but you couldn't move around too much. And if you're like, oh, I'm trying to get comfortable, like, no, get out. Sit on the floor. You've lost your privileges. And so, and we didn't have air conditioning, and that was part of the problem. And growing up, not all homes in Boston have air conditioning. That's pretty common, but we didn't have air conditioning. So in the summer, you sat, you were wearing shorts, and you sat on that furniture. When you went to get up, it was like peeling a fruit roll-up. It was like, you know, that... That suctioning sound was happening. And so, but I, I remember the first time that my, my mom let me stay home alone. I was 11. My stepdad was at work. My stepbrother was with him. My mom was going to the store with my sister. And 
she, uh, she's like, hey, do you want to stay home? And goes, I'm like, no, I'd rather stay home. So she leaves, and I'm watching her out the window as she pulls out and leaves. And I'm like, yes. I run upstairs to my bedroom. I grab my Van Halen 1984 record. Yes, I said record. And if you don't know what that is, we can't be friends. And, uh, but I grab the record, and my stepdad had this, like, uh, you know, he had like this, one of those towers that had like a cassette deck and whatever, and then he had a, a, a turntable on top. So I put uh, the Van Halen album on the turntable, and man, I, I mean, I turned this thing up to 10. I mean, I was blasting it, and then I start jumping around. I'm jumping on the furniture, playing air guitar, doing my best Eddie Van Halen impression, and then, and I remember I was standing, I had one foot on the arm of the couch, and I had one foot on the back of the couch, and, I'm, and then I hear this slam behind me, my mom had forgotten something. She circled the block and came back. And, um, and my friends, that's when things got ugly, really, if I'm going to be honest with you. And then my mom introduced me to another song on that very same album, a song called House of Pain. And, um, and my problem is I didn't know she was coming back so soon. And had I known that she was returning, I would not have been messing around or goofing off. And the same thing is true for us. One of the foundational truths of the Christian faith is that Jesus is coming back. And this is one of the things that we're told over and over again. In fact, Jesus himself in John chapter 14 told us this. He said, uh, you'll see it up on the screen, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. But I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, then I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. One of the healthiest ideas that we can live with in our minds as Christians, is the idea that Jesus could come back today. Living with that reality will impact how you live. It'll impact how you speak. It'll impact how you act. It'll impact even what you prioritize in your life. So as we find ourselves, if you can believe it, 36 messages into our series through the Gospel of Matthew, we've reached one of my favorite sections in all the Bible as we begin the topic of Bible prophecy. Now, I am fully convinced that Bible prophecy should not be something that we're confused by. It shouldn't be something that we lack knowledge in because it should be something that fuels our faith. In fact, if you're not aware, a quarter of the Bible is Bible prophecy. And here's the challenge, and I think this is one of the things that culturally challenges us, is that sometimes what we think about Bible prophecy kind of flies in the face of what we believe culturally. Now, let me. what do I mean by that? Um, there's certain things that we believe culturally that, uh, that really aren't true, but we think them anyway. If you're a note taker, we'll go through them quick. The first is, is that the, we believe the future will always be better. And that's because most of us are working towards making our future better, right? It's like I had this job and I left it, so I got this other job because it's better and I don't want one that's worse. We're sacrificing so that our kids have a better life than we've had. And we'll, you know, we'll vote people into office or out of office because we believe that their ideas will make the country or the organization or God help you, the HOA, um, better. And so, <laughs> and so, but listen, the Bible doesn't tell us that things are going to get better. The Bible tells us that things are going to get bad and that Jesus is going to return and make things right. And here's the second one. And this is, this is heavy. All right. So let's just Let's talk about it. The second one is that we believe society is getting more sophisticated. It's not, but we think it is. Um, we just simply dress up our atrocities in different language. 
I mean, one of the things people say, well, at least we're not sacrificing our kids to pagan deities like they did thousands of years ago. I disagree. We're still doing it. We just call it something different. You know, in the ancient world, uh, there was a, a false god that was worshipped by the name of Molech. And Molech was a statue, and you can Google it and find it, but he would have his arms outstretched, and then you would open his torso section. That's where you'd put all of the, the, um, the wood for the fire, and uh, they would go to this place. It was called the Valley of Trophet in Israel, the Valley of Drumming. That's what it means in Hebrew. And people would sacrifice their children on the hot arms of Molech. I mean, like, and why would they do such a thing? And they would do it because they wanted to prosper financially. They did it because they wanted their relationships to be blessed. They wanted to be successful in the future. And guess what? Molech worship is still alive and well uh, here in our culture. We just call it something different, and we sanitize it by calling it something else, but it's still alive and well. Third thing is that we believe human decisions are the key to progress. Now listen, some of our culture doesn't believe that in the existence of evil. There's just good and bad decisions. That's all that there really is. And we, all we have to deal with are the consequences of people's decisions. Now, obviously, people's decisions play a role in the world, but there is such a thing as good, and that is the personification of good. There's such a thing as the personification of evil because there are some things that happen in the world that are so heinous, they cannot be explained away by simply, well, that guy just made a bad choice. The Holocaust was more than just Hitler's decision to hate Jewish people. No, Hitler, Adolf Hitler was obsessed with the occult, was obsessed with demonic teaching that consumed his life and influenced him to hate and, and once again fueled his desire to exterminate the Jewish people. And the point is, is that it's hard to think, you know, well, yeah, things are going to end, but, you know, we just have to change minds. No, there are spiritual forces at work. Now, I'm telling, all, telling us all of this by way of introduction because it's important for us to understand where we are starting from as we go into this topic. And so we are beginning, and this is one of the longer uh, private messages that Jesus gives, that Jesus is basically going to talk nonstop for two solid chapters. And uh, theologians call this section of Scripture uh, the Olivet Discourse is because Jesus is going to be sitting on the Mount of Olives as he explains to the, disciple, the disciples what's going to happen in uh, later times. But it all starts with a statement that Jesus makes and then three questions that the disciples ask. So we're going to start in Matthew 24. Let's look at what happens. Now, remember, if you were with us last time, Jesus has given this really hard message about the scribes and Pharisees to all the people, all right? And he has finally said this, and he's, just, he's you know, saying, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who murders the prophets and kills those who are stoned to her. How, how much I would have wanted to gather you like a hen gathers her chicks, but you were not willing. He end, ends that message. And then he, it says this in chapter 24, verse 1. Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And if you pause there, listen, um, it starts with these three questions, but here's what you need to understand. They're showing them the temple. Now, here's a picture of... Uh, this is a model of Jerusalem that is actually still 
in existence. If you come with us to Israel in November, we'll, we'll spend some time at this model and do some teaching right when we get to Jerusalem, so you'll get kind of a lay of the land. But, so this, is, this model is created at about 160th scale of the, city, uh, the old city of Jerusalem, and this is the, what's considered the temple proper. All of this, what are called Solomon's colonnades, all of this was built later by Herod the Great, who spent 46 years um, beautifying the temple, enlarging the temple to ingratiate himself to the Jewish people whom he was ruling over. Now, the Talmud, which is a Jewish commentary on the Torah, said, there's a line in there that says this, if you have never seen the Herod's temple, or you've seen the temple in the time of Herod, you have never seen a beautiful building. This is a building that people would come from everywhere to see. It was just this thing of magnificent beauty. The disciples are showing him all the intricacies of the temple, and Jesus says, not one stone will be left upon another. Now, what is Jesus saying? He is saying in a very specific way that the temple is going to be destroyed, and he's saying in a very specific way how the temple is going to be destroyed. Now, we're not going to get into it today. In our next message, I'm going to explain how the temple was destroyed and when and, and all of that. But then the disciples come to him when he's on the Mount of Olives and they ask him three questions. They say, when will these things be? That is, when is the temple going to be destroyed? Now, we know when that took place. That took place in 70 AD in the Jewish calendar on what's called the ninth of Av. Now, if you're just into like nerdy things um, like me, the ninth of Av is also the same day that the first temple was destroyed. Uh, it was in 586 BC. In 70 AD on the ninth of Av, the second temple was destroyed. So even to this day, in the Jewish community, the ninth of Av is a day of mourning, a day of fasting and prayer over the destruction of both of the temples of God. So the second question is, what will be the sign of your coming? That is, how do we know that your return is near? I mean, what are the conditions of the world going to be? And then third, what is the sign of the end of the age? Meaning, when will God establish his kingdom on earth? When will the current world system um, end? And so the words that follow that we're going to spend the next three weeks looking at, after this week and the next three weeks looking at, um, Jesus is going to give an answer. He's not going to give us a date, and everybody who picks a date is wrong. You would think that people would have learned by now that every time I, we pick a date, it's wrong. Jesus is going to say, and we'll see this later, no man knows the day or the hour. So I feel like every time people pick a date, Jesus is like, I'm not coming back on that day just because you're not going to be right. And so, because nobody knows the day. So anyway, now I'm probably, who knows how that works out, but that's what I think. Anyway, but... Um, but they're going to give us, we're going to get glimpses of what the world looks like at the time of Jesus's return. So we start, this is Jesus's answer in verse four. Jesus answered and said to them, take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many. If you pause there and give me your attention. When we talk about the times of the signs, there's three things that I want to look at in particular in these first verses that we're going to study. The first is this, if you're a note taker, and that is that the end is a time of spiritual confusion. Spiritual confusion. I don't know, have you ever had this moment in life, I think everybody has, where you think something happened, or you're like, yeah, remember we had that conversation, and somebody's like, no. Or, yeah, remember we went there, like we never went there. Like, yeah, remember that? Like, hey, we don't know each other. You know, I don't know if you ever, we always have, we have these moments where we think something is true, but it turned out not to be true. I, I, I had this happen last week. All right, remember last week, we were just doing two services, and 
I had to run, so I taught the 10 o'clock service, and I had to run home to pick up my wife. My wife broke her ankle about three weeks ago, and so she can't drive. So I get done with the service, I run upstairs, I grab my keys, and I remember that there was a baby dedication in the second service, so I gotta be, home, I gotta be back a little earlier than nor- normal. So I, I, um, I get in my car, I drive over, I forgot my phone, and so, and I didn't tell anyone that I was leaving because, you know, I plan ahead. And um, so I pick my wife up, and then I got to figure out how to put that little scooter thing that she walks, you know, scoots around in. I got to figure out how to put that in my car. And then I get Olivia in the car. We rush back to church. I get back to church, and I park here in the back of the building, and I hear that the second song is ending, and that's when Pastor Alex is going to be hosting, and then he's going to invite me up for the baby dedication. So I'm like, honey, work it out. And so I just start running. I know, I'm such a loving husband. I, I, I just start running. I run around the building. I run through the front door. I run through that back door. And the band is like, and, there, and I just see them. I'm looking at George. George is like looking around. At least that's what it seems like to me. And, I'm, and, and I don't see Alex because Alex is supposed to be the one hosting. So I'm like, and so I say, I know what happened. Alex is out looking for me because I didn't have my phone. So he's probably upstairs, because sometimes um, I'll, I might be a little bit late coming down, because I'll, I'll, I'll have a meeting or something, or be talking to someone who needs ministry in between services, and so I'll be kind of tied up, and he'll come up and be like, hey, it's time. And so I'm like, I know what happened. He's out there looking for me, and now I'm, I was out. He didn't even know that I was out, so I just ran up on the stage and just started hosting. And I'm like, hey, and, and so I looked at Pastor George standing there, and I gave him this look like, I don't know where Alex is, but I'm a team player, so I'll just host the service. And all the while, so I'm just doing this, uh, I'm, I'm hosting service, and I'm like, where in the world is Alex? I mean, because at some point, he must be hearing my voice now, and he knows where I'm on the stage, he's, he's in the building. So I do the announcements, which by the way, this is why people don't let me do announcements, because the ma- announcements were almost as long as the service. Uh, like, I mean, because, I mean, seriously, I, I, I was doing the announcements, and I'm like, when is this gonna end? And this is why, like, I just start preaching in the announcements. And this is why they're like, hey, preach when it's time to preach. We're just going to fill people in quickly as to what's going on. So anyway, I, then we do the baby dedication, which was great. And then I leave. And then the band comes back up, plays another song. I come back up and preach. And then service is over. And I'm talking to people. And then we get to the end. And the last people in the lobby is myself, Pastor George, and Pastor Alex. And so I finally see Alex. And I'm like, hey, man what happened to you? And I'm like, you were probably running around. You didn't know that I went to get Carrie, but you were probably running around looking for me. And he says, Pastor Bob, I was on the stage standing next to you. (laughs) And I said, no, you weren't. He's like, yes, I was. I was standing right next to you on the stage. And he's like, and and I'm like, no, you weren't on the stage. That's why I jumped up like a gazelle. And, uh, and, and then started hosting because I didn't see you because you were probably running around looking for me. He's like, I wasn't looking for you at all because I was on the stage and I told somebody else to go find you, which apparently they did not. And so, and then that's why, and, and, and so anyway, so I, and I'm like, dude, I don't even believe that, 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 that is, imp-. And I'm like, I told him, I'm like, it's impossible that you were on the stage next to me and I didn't see it. So then the next day, Pastor George finds the live stream of the service and sends me this picture. (laughs) 
And then, because these people that claim to love me troll me, they sent me this one. And I said, this is the problem, Alex. You were social distancing. We don't do that anymore. We don't have to slow the spread. We're past that. So, <laughs> now, here's, this is what's so weird, is that we live in the information age. And you would think, because there is so much information at our disposal, nothing would get past us that wasn't legit. But we live in a world now where there's so much confusion, where anytime there's news that someone doesn't like, they just call it fake. And it doesn't matter, you know, who's is it? Well, what is that? That's fake. Oh, so it didn't happen? I'm not saying that. I'm saying I don't like it. And so, and it's just, it is the weirdest thing. There is confusion as, did this happen? Is it spin? And there is all, there is all this confusion. Listen, uh, there is a historian, a Roman historian whose name is Josephus, Flavius Josephus. So if you're thinking about having kids, Flavius is not a name that's being used much. But anyway, his name is Flavius Josephus. And um, he has a very, very thick um, couple of volumes that he wrote about um, history at that time. And so he was fascinated with the history of the Jewish people. And he wrote these, I mean, huge, I mean, it's probably like a thousand pages, his, um, his history of the Jews. And he wrote that prior to the coming of Jesus, which he talks about Jesus a lot in his, um, in his books. And this guy was not a Christian, by the way. He was just fascinated with Jewish history. And um, that there were only three people that it was thought that they might be the Messiah. Not that they even claimed to be the Messiah, but that, that people thought might be the Messiah. Only three in Jewish history prior to the coming of Jesus. After Jesus makes the statement that many false messiahs would come, there has, never, there has been this unceasing line of people who are claiming to be the Messiah, claiming to share the way of truth and all of this, and are deceiving. This is why I say that we live in an area, in a time of spiritual confusion. And by the way, one of the ways that people confuse is when they talk about faith. One of the most common things that people say, well, you know, all religions are basically the same. And the common misnomer is that all religions have superficial differences, but great commonality, when really it's actually the opposite. Most faiths have superficial commonality, but great differences. And I'll give you an example. And let's talk about the two largest religions in the world, Christianity and Islam. Now, are the differences, and this is what some would say, that calling God Yahweh or calling God Allah is the, the only difference. I mean, you know, Pope Francis says that Muslims and Christians worship the same God. I mean, like somebody needs to buy that dude a Bible. And, um, and so, now, but both Muslims and Christians believe there's one God. Like, okay. But who that God is and how that God is understood and how that God is worshipped is very, very different. According to Islam, and by the way, you don't have to take my word for any of this. You can feel free to do your own research, and here's what you're going to find. According to Islam, Allah is unknowable and is completely separated from the world that he created. According to Islam, Allah has no sons. He has only messengers who speak for him. According to Islam, Allah gives rules to follow so that you might, if you follow the rules correctly, have the possibility of spending eternity with him. Yahweh, the God of Christianity, invites people. He's not unknowable. He invites people to know him. He invites people to follow him. 
Yahweh, the God of Christianity, entered our world through the person of Jesus, the Son of God, who took our sins upon himself. Christianity teaches that Jesus himself is God, and Islam does not believe that. And what we have is, is this illustration that people give to kind of tell us that, well, these are kind of the differences that, that people have. And it's, I don't know if you've ever heard the story of um, the three blind men touching the elephant to try to explain who the elephant is. The first blind man touches its leg and says, it's tall, an elephant is like a tree. The second touches its trunk and says it's long, an elephant is like uh, a snake. The third uh, blind man touches the, the tusk and says, oh, it's sharp, an elephant is like a spear. And then we laugh, oh, yeah, see, that's what different faiths are all trying to do to explain God. But the problem is that illustration doesn't work. The only, the, uh, we only know that a blind man only sees part of the elephant because someone is claiming to see the whole elephant. And that's why the illustration doesn't work. But all of it is to show us that truth is relative. And, and to tell us that there really can't be any absolute truth because what's true for you isn't necessarily true for me. And that, I'm sorry, that doesn't work. If something is true, it's true for everybody. And if something is not true, it's not true for everybody. And see, I, I have a friend uh, that I went to high school with who's an atheist, and he's a good guy. But he'll say, like, I don't believe in absolute truth. And, and my issue, whenever, every time I've said that, I'm like, my problem with your statement is that that's an absolute, and you don't believe those. And so, and is it that it's like, well... I mean, there's certain things. I'm like, okay, so there's certain things that are absolute, and then there's other things that you don't believe absolutely. Is that how that, you know? Um, and and it, it, it's a misnomer that people think, well, you've got to believe something to make it true. That's not how, thing, how, how reality works. You don't have to believe in gravity. You can deny gravity all day long, and yet that doesn't make it any less true. The question that we have to ask ourselves if we say, is something true, does it correspond to reality? That is, does it have the data to back it up? And that's what makes it true. And that's why as Christians, I am so, if I'm your pastor, I am so deeply committed to have you understand what is a Christian worldview, to be able to explain it. And I, I am absolutely committed to helping us get there. Thanks. You know... People clapped at different spots, but no one clapped in that spot, which makes this service more special. So I appreciate that. 12.15 for the win. All right. So <laughs> let me show you this, because if you're like, oh, I'm glad the heavy part's over. Oh, we haven't started yet. Um, now, verse 6, it says, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention. Second thing I want to tell you, and that is that the end is a time of political conflict. I know it's hard for us to fathom this, because like, right, a lot of us live in gated communities. But the world has never been bloodier than it is now. 123 million, that is the number of people who were killed by war in the 20th century. That makes this past century the bloodiest in recorded human history. And that's why I was telling you before that we have this thought that we are so much more sophisticated than we were in previous generations, and we're not. The human heart has not changed. And human depravity is still what it is. That's why Jesus says that nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. He's not kind of saying the same thing for the purpose of being uh, 
for the purpose of parallelism, when he says nation will rise against nation, the Greek word there is the word ethnos. We get our word ethnic or ethnicity, and it speaks of racial tension. Now, I want to camp on this for a moment because racial tension and racial reconciliation is a big part of the national conversation that we're having in our culture. We want racial reconciliation, but we don't want God, even though that equality always stems from the fact that every single person is created in God's image. But as a, as a culture, we don't want to acknowledge that, but we still want the fruit of that, which is racial harmony. And, and it reminds me of this, um, if you'll forgive the illustration, when my daughter Mia was two, now she's turning 16 next week, and I don't even know how that happens, because I'm pretty sure that girl was born yesterday. Um, but anyway, 16 years have passed fairly quick. But when she was two, uh, she walked into uh, our bedroom early in the morning, grabbed my wallet, and took out $10. Now, I woke up, and she's like, Dad, I need this. And I'm like, you need what? She's like, this money. And I said, for what? She says, I need money for my party. And I said, what kind of party are you going to have? She says, I'm having a special tea party for all my friends. I'm like, great. Can I come? She said, no, it's for my friends. And I'm like, okay, so you want me to fund the purchase orders for your party, but I can't attend? She's like, right. And so she leaves. And so now, so I said, fine. And then, now let me show you a picture of the tea party. Um, now, all, all you want, listen to me. Let me explain a couple of things, all right? There's no food on the tea party, right? Mr. Potato Head and Mickey, they got nothing to eat. She didn't spend any of the money. She's like, well, you know, these, you guys aren't going to eat much. You just got something out of the kitchen for herself. And then she just pocketed the cash for a future investment. And so... Now, I, but I do, need to, I do need to show you what she looked like when she asked me the question. So that's what she looked like when she asked me the question. And then um, my wife says, uh, Bob, why is Mia walking around with $10? I said, she's having a party and you're not invited. And, um, and then, and she's like, giving her money is not a good idea. And I said, Care, in the Bible, do you know what happens when people don't listen to an angel? They get killed. And I want to live. She can have those $10 with my compliments. And so... Now, but this is what we do with God, is that we're like, hey, we want to make sure we have the party, and we want to make God, there's got to be perfect harmony, but by the way, you're not invited. And over the last two years, of course, because this has become part of our national conversation, I've been asked a good bit about uh, racism, I've been asked a, a good bit about racial equality in our culture, and let me share this with you, and I think it's important to understand. Um, racism is sin. That's what the Bible calls it. It's sin, Period. But here's the problem. Our culture is seeking things that are only available in the kingdom of God. Let me read you this. The, the Apostle Paul writes this in the book of Galatians because there was some, there was some um, ostracizing that was taking place of believers who weren't Jewish. And so there was people were separating themselves if you were a Gentile believer. And Paul is calling that racism out um, in the church at, in Galatia. And he says this, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The late famed evangelist Billy Graham used to always say that the ground at the cross is level, right? And so in the kingdom of God, it doesn't matter what your background is. We are all equal and loved and valued because we have the same Savior and we have the same Father. Now, 
here's what I know for sure, is that if you give your life to Jesus, that is the best way to cure or the best way to present racism because racism is incompatible with the gospel. And then I get this question, and that is, yeah, but what about people who aren't Christians and don't want to be Christians? And here's my answer. I have no idea. I don't know how to make people who aren't Christians try to force them to act like Christians. I don't know how that works. I'm not your guy for that. I'm a Christian pastor, and I view the world through that lens. But if you're like, well, I just want general advice on the world's woes, I have no idea. Because I have one solution for just about every problem. Come to Jesus. That's my, the one string on my guitar. And if you, listen, and if, and I appreciate that. But if you don't want to do that, it's a free country. But don't blame God when the world is on fire. All right? And this is, and if you want to press me further, now you guys have been very polite, so I'm going to press myself a little bit. And so I believe what Jesus is teaching here is that racial tension is a sign of the end and a sign of the return of Jesus. But listen, it doesn't make sense that as a culture we reject God and don't want to walk with him and then blame him when there's racial tension and division. That's madness. And then when Jesus says not just nation, ethnos against ethnos, when he says kingdom against kingdom, this is national conflict resulting in war. And then he also talks about natural disasters like famines, earthquakes, pestilences. And then he says this in verse 8. He says, these, this is not the end. These are just the beginning of sorrows. Now, if you, in your notes, you may want to circle that word sorrows and write this word. The Greek word is odin, O-D-I-N. And it refers to the, the birth pangs of a woman in labor. Now, listen, well, you know, my wife has been pregnant three times, all right? Now, I didn't say we were pregnant because I'm old school. I believe women get pregnant. Um, and so, now listen, my wife was pregnant three times, and you knew, and if you've experienced this as a woman or as, as a husband, you're like, hey, you know, my wife is going to give birth. You knew this, that when the contraction pains increase in frequency and intensity, you know the baby's on its way. And that is the thing that Jesus is saying, is that when things increase in frequency and intensity, you will see it's going to indicate that we are at the times and seasons. And we're going to talk more about that next time. But look what he says in verse 9. This is where we're going to bring it to a close. It says, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. Then false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to the nations, and then the end will come. Last thing I want to tell you before we go our way. Number three, and that is that this is a time of increased anti-Semitism. One of the things that we have to understand, and I'm going to repeat this throughout our series through Matthew 24 and 25, is that is for us to remember who Jesus is speaking to. He is speaking to men of Israel his Jewish disciples. And it's so easy to try to kind of read ourselves into the text. This is not about us. This is about Israel. And I, and I, I want us to think about this for a minute, but why is anti-Semitism on the rise? I mean, this past week, the Anti-Defamation League posted the results to a survey that they've been conducting, and they saw that anti-Semitic speech has doubled since 2019. In that study, it showed that over 30% of Americans are more even more anti-Israel than they are anti-Jewish. And that is sad and scary all at the same time. 
Because you would think for all the hatred that people have of Nazi Germany, that what they did to the Jewish people would at least garner a little bit of sympathy for the people of, uh, of Israel for all that, that happened um, in, during World War II. And if it hasn't, then listen, it's not because it's a practical issue or a political issue. It's a spiritual issue. Because listen, Satan, our enemy, hates Israel. And throughout history has been seeking to destroy the Jewish people. And you can take that all the way back to the book of Exodus when Pharaoh was saying, hey, drown all the uh, Hebrew boys in the Nile River. And we can go a little bit further when uh, at the time of Esther, when Haman has this plot to destroy all the Jews. And we can take it a little bit further when Jesus the Messiah was born and they tried to kill all the babies in Bethlehem. Listen, Team Satan has been doing all this stuff to try to kill and wipe out the Jewish people. And here's why this is important. And I think that there's something important for us to understand because sometimes we experience difficulties, challenges, and we've done all the practical stuff that we know to do to make it better. And when all the practical stuff that we know to do hasn't worked, it leads us to the conclusion that some things are simply spiritual problems and God is the only one who can fix it. And this means, and this is big, is that Whatever kind of setback we experience, it's temporary at best because we know that there's a future where God makes everything right. Whenever we see a crime or a tragedy, listen, our hearts groan. And there's a reason for that because you were created in the image of a just God. And he is going to make all of these wrongs right in due time. The belief in a future judgment, and I believe in a future judgment and The Bible teaches it. You should believe it too. And sometimes, oh no, but that's just so harsh. No, the belief in a future judgment should make a Christian feel free because Jesus was judged on our behalf. So we have nothing to fear on the day of judgment. And we know that God is going to judge and make all the wrongs right. Do you know every other worldview teaches that pain and suffering are either the result of total randomness, we don't know why bad things happen, or... It's the result that you probably deserve it for some undisclosed reason. Christianity is the only worldview that teaches that God became a man and endured the suffering that we experience so that there would be one day when he would make everything right, not just for a moment, but make it right for all of eternity. My friends, that's part of what makes Christianity such good news, that there is a day coming when God is going to wipe away every tear and death is going to be something that we look at through the rearview mirror. And this is why you can live for weeks without food or days without water or minutes without air, but you cannot live for one second without hope. And you know, one of the titles that the Apostle Paul gives to Jesus that I love, when he talks about the second coming, he says this, as we await the coming of our great God and Savior, Jesus, he says this, he calls him the blessed hope. Because not only can we not live without hope, We can't live and make sense of the world without him. Let's pray together. And Lord, we want to thank you for that promise and that reality that you want to do good in this world and you want the church to be the place where people are transformed from the inside out. God, may this be the place where justice reigns and that the rest of the world looks on and tries to figure out how we have loved one another and enjoyed one another and experienced one another 
because, Lord, you're our heavenly Father, and your Son has saved us. So, God, help us. Help us to live in such a way that we know that Jesus could come back any day. And, Lord, we pray it's today. And we pray it in Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. If today you made a decision to follow Jesus, congratulations. It's one of the best decisions you've ever made. And we as a church want to help you with your next steps. You see, we have a free gift we'd like to give you. And in order for you to receive that gift, all you have to do is visit mycalvary.com forward slash begin. Don't forget to tune in next week for our next podcast. God bless you.